So there's a really simple concept that I want to talk about today, something that I want to teach you. And it's a very simple way of assessing the health of your relationship. Simply put, there are two factors to look for, two indicators to look for. One, does the conversation flow naturally back and forth between you? Do you feel like, can you talk to them for hours about anything and everything? Can you ramble on back and forth, meme off each other, swap references? Can you listen to her talk for half an hour and then she talks and then you talk for half an hour and she listens? Can you back and forth that conversation effortlessly? It should feel almost effortless. Is the flow of the conversation easy and natural? The other indicator to look for is, can you sit in silence with them in the same room, doing the same thing or different things, and not feel the need to fill that silence to the point where it becomes uncomfortable if you don't? So those are the two indicators to look for. Does the conversation flow easily and naturally between the two of you when you're together and when you're alone? And do you feel, can you sit in silence with her and do something totally unrelated to what she's doing and not feel the need to fill that silence, not feel any awkwardness or any need to fill that silence to the point that it makes you uncomfortable or anxious, right? Do you feel comfortable with this person on a deep, deep level? And I found these two indicators to be extremely reliable indicators in, in partnership, not one or the other, both have to be present for the health of the relationship. So if both of these check out, then generally speaking, your relationship is probably pretty okay. That's simply my experience and it's a simple tool that I wanted to share with you to help you assess the health of your relationship. It's just something simple that I came up with, but it's been surprisingly useful for myself and for other many, many other people that I've taught this to. Now, some of the best relationships I've ever been in have been ones in which I did almost all of the talking. Now, I don't think that was a function of the relationship. I think that was just a function of the people in it. I like to talk. I'm good at talking. I have a lot of opinions on a lot of different subjects. I read extensively. I usually go through one full-length non-fiction book every week and usually one full-length fiction book every three days. I read a lot. Like if you think about how much people watch Netflix, I don't watch television, I read. So I have a lot of opinions on things and I have a lot of topics of interest to me, a huge amount of topics that I'm very passionate about. I'm generally quite a passionate person. And I like to talk about these things. I like to get other people's thoughts. I like to gather their ideas. I like to compare and contrast different perspectives. And that often means that in my relationships, I've done most of the talking. So I know from my experience, it's good for me to be with someone who is capable of talking or capable of listening. And I'm also quite an adept listener. I don't enjoy it very much, but it's something that I can do in a relationship. So generally speaking, those two indicators are really, really good 
indicators of the health of the relationship. If they have two of those, if you have both of those things, if you can go for a hike with someone and talk, you know, one hour out of the three hours that you're hiking, that's fantastic. The conversation flows easily and naturally back and forth between you, brilliant. And then if you can sit on the couch with someone for an hour and watch The Expanse or, you know, another show that you're into or a movie together, and not feel the need to fill that awkward silence with anything. Although, in fairness, when I watch movies, I like to comment on what's happening. So, um, not the best example there. But if you can sit, say, in a lounge room together and she's playing your PlayStation and you're reading a book and you don't feel the need to fill that silence with something, that's a generally excellent sign. So this is a simple tool for assessing the health of your relationship. Now. When it comes to training a submissive, there are, there are steps. So one of the first priorities that you should have is to understand the landscape that you're working in and to set concrete intentions and create a very detailed vision for that relationship and what you're trying to accomplish, um, what both of you are trying to accomplish before you begin shaping them using a variety of different training techniques. So I've been very frustrated in the past when people have said, oh, you have to define your intentions, but they haven't told you what that actually looks like. So here is what I consider to be the standard for defining the intention. So the intention of the relationship is a paragraph or so or less in length, and it defines clearly what the intention of the relationship is. It is written down, right? That's the standard to have three or four sentences of written intention. Vision is, vision is a concept that I will definitely go into more detail on in future podcast episodes, but for now, the simplest way to explain it is to have a half page minimum of written down of exactly what you want the relationship to look like. Now, there's a variety of different techniques that you can use to do this but I will go into much more detail on these in a later podcast episode. Suffice to say that before you begin training your submissive, you should have a very clear vision of at least a minimum of a half page in length, written out, as in written out, not just, oh, you know, I wanna make her into a sex slave, or oh, I wanna make her into a submissive, or I wanna make her into, like, what does that look like? What's her day to day? So she wakes up in the morning as a sex slave. Where does she wake up? At the foot of your bed? in your bed, in someone else's bed, you know, in the hallway of your home? Where does she wake up? What time does she wake up? What does she do first? What does she do next? You know, a vision. And then there are a number of different tools that you can use. I guess this is more in line with the original intention of this episode, this, uh, this lesson. But I will list some of these tools and some of the times that it's best to use them. Now, these are not things that I really recommend for an ordinary relationship, for a normal relationship. You don't need them. They're overkill. And it's a little unusual for, I mean, it's always felt very unusual for me when in the past I've had a woman, multiple women, ask me what my MBTI type and then refuse to engage once they've found out what my type is. Like they're filtering people out based on an abstract test rather than any kind of personal interaction with 
that person. It's a very odd way of interacting with the world. And I've never met someone that was doing that from a healthy place. I'm sure they exist, but I've never met someone that was doing it from a healthy place. They were always doing it as a self-defense mechanism because they were not taking the time to deal with their own trauma. Uh, so in no particular order, here's some of the tests that I've used in the past and when and how best to apply them. So the five love languages is excellent. That's something that you can do within the scope of a normal relationship. Uh, find out what yours are, find out most particularly what theirs are. And this sort of dovetails into another lesson I have on the difference between validation, the act and what it means. So keep an ear out for that one. But love languages, super basic, like literally like one word. Um, very easy to remember. Most people in my experience have one or two and then the other three are strongly de-emphasized. If they have three or four, I would pick two to focus on. And then just hit those pretty hard. Now these are very useful because you can work them into your triggers as well. So if someone has a very strong touch component in receiving love, you can modify the triggers that you give them. So for pleasure, for example, you create a pleasure trigger and then you add in a kinesthetic element, a touch element of every time that you hear my voice say the word pleasure, you will feel my arms wrapping around you in a warm hug. Like a warm hug from master. And that can be a way of enhancing the effectiveness of your triggers to add in their love languages, right? Words of affirmation is another love language. It's a very simple test and as far as I know, it's still free. They make money off it by charging for the book, which I'm sure you can find a copy of on Z library. That's the letter Z, then the word library. Um, just Google it, you'll understand what I mean. And it's an excellent book, very simple, very easy to understand. And that's the sort of test that is appropriate for applying in a normal relationship. So love languages. The other one, yeah, so you can use that to rewire people's triggers to make them more effective. Or you can just use it to make sure that you give them gifts because that's how they interpret love or you can spend quality time with them because that's how they interpret love. So very easy to use that and you can use it at any point in the relationship. The other one that works very well for normal relationships, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Uh, the other one that's usually permissible as well within the context of a normal relationship is the big five personality indicators but we'll get to those in a second. So the MBTI is a long test that sorts you into one of 16 different categories. And I have found the results from this to be freakishly accurate. Not to the point where I would live my whole life based on the dogma of this test, as I know some people that do. And I've met plenty of women that, again, have this weird preoccupation with what their MBTI is. It's like a, like a jungle savage trying to make sense of weather or some sort of environmental system over which they have no control by creating strange rituals around human sacrifice, right? It's, it's like using your MBTI type to filter people out. I've not seen that work very well. Um, the, the best indicator for compatibility is still going to be in-person, first-hand time alone with someone. But I have found these test results for very useful self-assessment purposes. 
and I have assigned them to submissives and slaves in the past to give them a better understanding of who they are. I highly recommend purchasing the extended results. They're almost always worth reading, particularly the sections on relationship compatibility with other type, other MBTI types. Very handy, and there's, some, there's usually some pretty significant insights in there. So that's the other one that you can use in a normal relationship. Now, another one that you can use is the big five, which is essentially, I guess, kind of a streamlined, modernized version of a personality assessment. I've always preferred the MBTI test myself, but big five is another good one. I'll put links to all of these in the show notes. There's also the strengths test, which is good but really more of a self-assessment tool i've assigned it to a few people in the past i think it costs about 12 dollars australian to do it uh, but i've now sort of shifted away from that one i think it's more useful for self-assessment but the thing about these tests is there's a lot of them there's there's going to be about 14 or 15 that i know of that i don't mention in this episode because of how crap they are uh, the methodology they're based on is just ridiculous you know, I tend to evaluate these tests in terms of what's useful and what's applicable. What provides me with information that I can apply? You know, like five love languages is brilliant because I can apply that easily. I can prioritize and emphasize a particular way of interacting with someone and see almost immediate results. You know, Myers-Briggs type indicators, super useful, right? A little trickier to apply, but still very, very applicable. And then you get things like the n-gram, which, which do exist and are valid tests, but are much more of a self-assessment tool, I believe, than something that you want to assign to someone so that you can understand them better, so that you can train them better. Uh, so the n-gram is another one that you can do. Again, very long, very complex, very, in my opinion, relatively speaking, difficult to interpret the information that it gives you and even more difficult to apply it. Again, I emphasize simplicity in these things. Five love languages, super simple. You will get three words. Just keep those in mind, like, you know, acts of service or giving gifts, right? Keep that in mind. Boom. Easy. You know, MBTI stuff, read through their results understand their results and then pick a couple of things that are memorable or interesting or significant and keep those in the forefront of your mind you know and i produce a lot of content on communication and i'm, I'm working on a few episodes a few lessons on that as well so keep an ear out for those but yeah so in rough summary those are some of the tests that you can apply to i might add some more later on to the show notes with a short description of when and where but the mbti ones are best best used just before you begin a formalized training process just to get a clear assessment this is sort of in the assessment phase uh, if you haven't seen it yet there's a checklist for training submissives document that i put together in the resources folder which is quite good and that covers the general phases of submissive training it's a it's not a complex topic but there is a fair amount of information required and some practical elements must be practiced to the point of effectiveness before you can use them. I mean, that sounds a bit ridiculous, but it's like anyone can pick up a hammer and make a pretty okay job of banging in a nail. 
but that's not the same as building a house. You know, it takes maybe several hours to become proficient with a hammer, which is an object designed to bang in nails. So some of the tools that you'll need to learn, like operant conditioning and shaping or erotic hypnosis, with some of those for submissive training, the, the information to find itself has been deliberately obfuscated, deliberately made difficult to even find, let alone understand. This is one of those ranty topics that I will rant about later on, but it frustrates me no end that there is no single unified repository online or in a torrent of all educational content on erotic hypnosis to date. There are conventions that are run regularly where skilled presenters do occasionally stumble through the filters and present an excellent class. But very often these classes are not recorded and it's extremely marginalizing to people in other parts of the world, to people that can't afford to go. I, I tend to not rely on the economic argument for accessibility here because I think the prices, in my experience, for these conferences are very, very reasonable. They're on the low side of reasonable. I would charge more. But I don't see a lot of people who are really committed to this that can't save up 40 US dollars a year to go to one of these things or, you know, piggyback with some friends to split a couch in a hotel room or there's, there's a way around most of the financial limitations that prevent people from going to these things. They're not extraordinarily highly priced and there is a, a strong sense of we're all in this together, I guess. So there's a lot of resource sharing that I have observed, which is cool, really cool. Like I'm, I'm into that, you know. Um, but the geographical argument is a much more compelling one. There are so many people all over the world, in Europe, in America, in Australia, in other countries, that don't have physical access to the ability to attend these conferences at those particular time zones. Now, some have made some effort to stream them online or to publish online versions of those conferences very briefly, but I think it's ridiculous. Like, I think it's tragically ridiculous that someone hasn't set up some kind of system to record the audio content from all these presentations on all these wonderful, diverse topics and publish those in some way. It's why I have so much respect for the Power in Practice guys. You know, if you haven't checked out the website yet, powerinpractice.com, uh, it's in English, and they have a podcast which to this day is the finest kink podcast I have ever listened to. And their whole um, modus operandi, their whole methodology and intention behind it was to record the conversations they were having in private and then just publish them. And I really admire that spirit. I really admire the intention behind that. And I, I wish that more erotic hypnosis practitioners and educators would, would follow that same vein of recording the things they produce. And I'm already aware of the dozens of different arguments as to why this is not practical, blah, blah, blah. Trust me, I'm probably better educated on this topic than you are. Probably. I might not be. I'm willing to admit that. But I've given it a lot of thought because this is one of the choke points. This is, in a strategic sense, this is an artificial barrier. This is very much like the De Beers diamond cartel. 
and I use the term cartel in its mafia-like sense, in the sense that diamonds are extremely abundant, relatively speaking, and there's no artificial scarcity until something imposes that artificial scarcity, right? And these guys are just fuckwits in a, in a very broad sense. I mean, I understand their whole business model relies on artificial scarcity, so I don't hate them for existing, but they have successfully weaponized artificial scarcity. It's a great example of how erotic hypnosis has inadvertently and unintentionally done a very similar thing. Right? By not recording any of these workshops or making them available anywhere, it creates a very marginal, a very strong marginalizing effect for people who cannot physically be in a particular hotel room in a particular city, in a particular state, in the United States, or in Europe, where most of these things happen, the US and Europe, and you simply cannot learn if you are not physically in the room. You can't learn if you are not able to be awake at 4 a.m. in your local time zone because no one is recording it, and they will not publish it, despite the fact that there are no less than three platforms I can name off the top of my head that allow you to publish a free podcast. As in, I will do a longer episode on this later on because that's a topic worth talking about. But how I would do it is a shared resources folder filled with the raw MP3s and handouts of all of these conferences sorted by conference and by year. And then a podcast stream of all of the presenters and all of the Q&A sections neatly labeled and published for free. Right Now, people that are, can't attend these conferences in person are not going to be put off by this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to buy a plane ticket to Europe and spend three days there at a conference just for the sheer fun of it, right? And I'm willing to bet that a lot of other people aren't either. So by not recording these, these workshops, by not making them publicly available, in an accessible way, not financially accessible necessarily. I, I fully support people charging money for their work. You are teaching a class that is of value that should be rewarded with an exchange of equivalent value for Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. But it's, uh, it's very marginalizing to people who can't be physically present in a particular place at a particular time who want to learn this stuff. And I see and I hear from, I know this is a real problem because I hear from dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people that email me. So there must be hundreds, if not thousands more of them who are interested in this stuff but can't find a decent way to get into it. They can't find a decent way to learn these things. You know? And they message me, they email me about how my podcast is like the best thing they've ever found on this. Not sucking my own dick here, I'm just telling you the truth. And the problem with this is, this is a problem that is well within the power of the quote-unquote EH community. By the way, the, the reason for the air quotes is it doesn't exist. You have a group of people that like doing erotic hypnosis, but they fulfill none of the actual requirements of being a community. Uh, and it's very easy for them to solve this. In the age of the internet, where you have things like torrenting, where you have things like, you know, you can spin up a static website for nothing, 
zero cost forever. Maybe 10 bucks US a year for the domain name, right? When you can create free resources folders on a number of different file sharing sites, there's really no excuse for this kind of ineptitude. I mean, this is fucking amateur hour and, and people are suffering from being not exposed to the wrong information at the wrong times. You know, um, there's a fantastic educator called Brad P. Look up his body of work, he's a genius, right? But his books were where I first heard about the idea of spaced repetition and informational exposure. I remember reading one of his books and he talks about the idea that, you know, the first time you're exposed to an idea, it kind of bounces right off. And then it usually takes like five or six times that you're exposed to an idea for it to kind of become aware to you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can evaluate that. And what's a big problem here is that people are not being exposed to anything, right? There's a handful of educators out there that are doing very good work but I've always published all of my content on education for free and I plan to continue to do that to the extent of my knowledge to make it accessible to as many people as possible, right? Now, at some point in the future, I will charge a small amount of money for it, but you know, you will always be able to go to a website, click a button and get my entire body of work for far less than what it's worth. And this is a service to other people. This is a service to people that are struggling, that, that don't feel accepted by the EH quote-unquote community, and that are tired of being passed over, that are tired of their snobbishness and their clickishness and their hoarding of resources and skills. You know, good stories belong to the world and information wants to be free, not necessarily in the sense that it doesn't cost anything, but in the sense that it should be accessible to people all over the world. So I guess I've kind of wandered off topic a little bit here, but uh, you know, there you go. I'll do more uh, of a thorough teardown of the flaws in this model and how to fix them in a future lesson. Yeah, so looping back to where we began, two mechanisms for determining the health of a relationship. Does the conversation flow easily and naturally? And can you sit with them in silence and not feel the need to speak to fill that silence? So yeah, so we talked about that. We talked about some of the other tests that you can do that are more, I guess, formal, but are really only particularly useful when you're assessing a submissive. And then I kind of went off on a tangent about why I think education should be, in, in the erotic hypnosis sense, completely overhauled and how I would do that. So take this tool, use it, apply it in your own relationships. And I hope that it's of benefit and value to you. Thank you for listening to the Mind King podcast. I hope that you found it useful and that you will implement the things you've learned to bring more joy into your life. You can find more content, including the free book, a folder of templates and printable handouts, heaps of audio files, and much more at the website, mindkink.net. 
feel free to send me a short email or to get in touch using the details on the contacts page. I always enjoy hearing from people who have benefited from my work.